Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode of The Litigation War Room, I speak with Sarah McWilliams, a business litigator described by one judge as an outstanding legal mind who refuted all the claims made by her opponent with assurance and aplomb. Sarah talks about an important recent case she handled that clarified the rights of corporate shareholders. Along the way, Sarah provides insights about shareholder litigation and about successfully litigating unresolved questions of law. Before turning to that, I want to highlight this podcast's one-year anniversary and to thank those who have made it possible. It's been a fantastic first year, and the Litigation War Room recently celebrated the occasion in grand style at the Detroit Athletic Club. Thanks to all who attended, and to the event's platinum sponsor, Acuity Group, a financial consulting firm with offices in Atlanta, Baltimore, and Detroit. We thank our show sponsors, Fort's Legal Support and Fishman Stewart. We thank the wonderful podcast guests who have shared their expertise and insights on the show. And most of all, we thank you, our listeners, for listening and subscribing. Please be sure to rate and review The Litigation War Room wherever you get your podcasts. Now on to the interview. Sarah McWilliams, welcome to The Litigation War Room. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for making time for this. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a very interesting and important case that you handled called Murphy v. Inman, which involves issues of corporate law and shareholder rights. But before we get to that, I want to hear more about you and your practice. Could you just take a minute to tell our listeners more about yourself? Sure. I specialize in business issues, and to that end, my practice generally consists of three areas. I serve as outside general counsel for a number of small to mid-sized companies, both in Michigan and elsewhere. I do business litigation, typically complex, larger cases, and I also run certain business and commercial real estate transactions for clients. And so you are truly both a litigator and a transactional lawyer, and I guess general counsel as well. How do you find that those things are mutually informing or mutually reinforcing? I find that having spent the first 10 years of my career really only fighting about primarily contracts and business issues very much helped inform me as to the way that I would actually draft documents. And being both in the courtroom setting and in the transaction setting regularly helps inform both of those. I know what judges tend to get hung up on. I know the issues that tend to lead to disputes. And so I can help counsel my clients on how to avoid problems and tailor documentation to really best protect them in the corporate world. There's an old saying that the American courtroom is one of the most dangerous places for any business. And that's really true. And I I feel like it's very helpful to have one foot in both worlds. I came into transactions really in connection with settlements. I had a, a number of large commercial cases that I settled with transactions And uh, while we were bringing in some other attorneys to help them, I ended up kind of getting my hands dirty and learning transactions through that process. And eventually my clients just said, I want you to do it. I want you there to guide me through the process. And having thought about it, I, I found it made sense to do that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, when you are doing corporate and commercial litigation, sometimes these settlement agreements, they can be very complex. Sometimes they involve a corporate restructuring or commercial transactions in themselves. And so if a litigator is not up to speed on those issues, well, they better get up to speed or bring somebody on who, who can handle those things. So um, sometimes it is a, a natural transition to go from when you're doing corporate and commercial litigation to, to some of that transactional work. Absolutely. And you have your own firm? I do. I do. I went off on my own in early 2017, and I love it. I love the freedom to be able to pick my own cases and clients and take care of clients the way I want to. And I've got a great team I work with here and just having fun. Listeners can't see this, but Sarah smiled when I asked that question because, of course, Sarah, I've known you for a number of years. And some of these questions I know the answer to, but, but certainly wanted our listeners to benefit from your answer to the question. Yes. And in fact, you and I have had some good victories together over the years. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's been a great working relationship and a great friendship. So it's fun to finally get you on the podcast. I want to talk about this case, Murphy v. Inman. Here in Michigan, this got a lot of attention recently. It's a case that addresses the duties of corporate directors and the actions that are available to corporate shareholders when they have been wronged or feel that they have been wronged. On an earlier podcast, I interviewed Peter Mahler, a New York attorney who's really a a real opinion leader in the area of shareholder disputes, business divorce. And this is a great follow-up to that. It's an issue that's, or a set of issues or an area of law, I should say, that's really of interest to me. I've litigated in that area, and I know you've done a ton of work in that area. In this case in particular, came to my attention recently when a notice went out from the Small Business Committee, I believe, of the State Bar of Michigan about the importance of this decision and and certainly saw that the case was getting a lot of attention. I looked it up and I thought, oh, well, look, it's Sarah McWilliams who who handled that case. So Sarah, can you kind of set up the case for us first, just from a factual perspective? Tell us a bit about your client, the type of business it was in, and what led up to this dispute? Sure. The case started, it was around a company that was called Covicent. Covicent was actually a Michigan-based IT company, offices right in Southfield, as well as other places. And it originally started to serve the automotive industry. The company had created a supplier exchange that really grew in popularity, and it ultimately expanded into industries like healthcare, oil and gas. It's really the dream of small IT startups that solicit financing from investors that just grew and and took off. And a lot of the shareholders were really pleased with how it was doing. It was actually a cloud-based platform. And so what it did is it allowed companies to communicate information with its suppliers, which is enormously important when you're trying to run a large organization that depends on a lot of support from different suppliers. CompuWare had acquired them in 2004, and then they were spun off in 2014. They ultimately went public in 2015, and they were doing pretty well and got some good press after that. By the time I got involved in this case, which was 2017, so not long after I'd actually went off on my own, they were actually supporting more than 2,000 different organizations, so they were pretty valuable. And then in 2017, its board made a deal to sell the company to OpenText. The company was called Open Text, and each shareholder was going to get $2.45 in cash as compensation for their stock in a cash-out merger. And that ruffled some feathers, including my clients, wrong. 
because the stock had actually been trading as high as $3.45 per share. And so it it looked like, uh, I mean, a dollar less per share, if you have a lot of shares, that's enough to really upset some people. Right. And so your client was Leslie Murphy, and this was just an individual shareholder, not otherwise involved in the management or day-to-day operations of the company, but uh, a shareholder in a publicly traded corporation. Yep. He was just an individual, and he came to my co-counsel, which had actually just recently gone off on their own at that point in New York, Monteverde and Associates, and he was upset, and he wanted to pursue some kind of a remedy. There were actually two other lawsuits that had already been filed in the Eastern District of Michigan at that point, but they were seeking only to enjoin the transaction. Those two lawsuits were handled by other attorneys and were ultimately settled with additional disclosures being made to the shareholders and some attorney fees, and they were resolved. But Murphy was not satisfied and wanted to pursue the matter. No, he wanted what he viewed as his fair share, the fair stock price. Absolutely. And so this company, OpenText, acquired Covizent, and this was a cash-out merger, I understand. Can you say a little bit about the nature of the transaction and give us as much or as little detail as you, you like, but, but just so that we kind of can understand the points of law here. Tell us about the merger that took place here. Sure. The term merger is generally used as referring to a variety of different transactions. What is considered a true merger is literally when you have two companies. Here, we're dealing with publicly traded company, but it doesn't have to be. And you literally merge them together, shove them together into one big company. This was a cash-out merger, which is where the larger company, here OpenText, essentially gobbles up the company that they're inquiring. They buy it. And then the existing shareholders of Covison, which included my client, get a compensation for their old stock in the old company. Because at the end of the day, when you close on a cash out merger, the company you're buying doesn't exist. So you gobble it up and you shove it into the bigger company and the old shareholders get cash. That's a cash out merger. The board here, they had pursued a number of different avenues, and on the table at the time were options of just continuing as a standalone company and exploring some different avenues to try to increase the share price for the shareholders, because obviously the name of the game when you're running a company legally and business-wise is to try to make money for your shareholders. So that was one option. There were some other interested buyers that were looking at acquiring this company because, as I mentioned, it was pretty valuable and was serving a number of very large organizations around the world. And the board ultimately made this deal, the one that we're suing over, with open text and decided to pursue a cash-out merger with them. That is a super helpful explanation. Tell us just how the case unfolded from the beginning. So you filed suit on behalf of your client. I understand there was an attempt to remove it to federal court, which you defeated and got it back in the state court. And did the case proceed to discovery? I know there was a motion for summary, but I don't know exactly where in the case that that happened. It didn't. You know, it's funny. If you litigate in complex commercial cases a lot, you see that these cases can last for years and years. This case was originally filed in March of 2017 in Oakland Circuit, and it never got to discovery. So when I first got involved, 
We looked at it. We looked at what our client was trying to achieve. And one of the first things that we had to decide was, are we going to file this in the Eastern District of Michigan? Or are we going to try to pursue direct damages? And we decided to file in Oakland Circuit, both because there had already been a couple of cases that had been filed in the Eastern District of Michigan. And also there was a beautiful opinion that had been written a couple of years ago called ITC Holdings that was decided by Judge Alexander. Opinion was actually written by an attorney that I co-counsel with frequently now when he was his clerk, Derek Howard. And we thought that we would be better off filing in Oakland Circuit. We had jurisdiction there because Covicent was based in Southfield, which is in Oakland County. A number of the directors, which is who you sue when you bring one of these actions, were living in Oakland County. And so we had a basis to go there. And so we filed in Oakland Circuit. There was an attempt to remove, which we did defeat. Judge Cleland agreed with us and we were sent back to Oakland Circuit at which point the defendants filed a motion to dismiss. And it was a very standard motion to dismiss from my perspective. Virtually always when you bring a case alleging breach of fiduciary duty by the directors and officers and people in control, there is an argument, at least there has been as long as I've been doing these cases, which is 15 plus years, there's always an argument that the case is derivative. Derivative meaning that the claim really belongs to the company. And the defense always likes to make that allegation for a couple of reasons. One is because it gives a lot of control back to the management. A derivative claim makes a lot of sense when you're dealing with something like a CEO who made a terrible deal for his own personal interests and hurt the company and the damages go back to the company. But when you're saying, all of you on the management team are making terrible deals that hurt us as shareholders. It's a more frustrating position to be in as a plaintiff because if the damage belongs to the company, then the shareholders don't really have any redress, any way to right the wrong, so to speak. So the defense here argued that the case should be dismissed because it was derivative, meaning that the claims belong to the company. And we hadn't followed the derivative procedure, which is true, because we were seeking direct damages. And they also claimed that the case should be dismissed because a proxy statement had gone out to all of the shareholders before the transaction was closed, and that a majority of the shareholders had approved the transaction. And they said for those two reasons, the entire case should be dismissed. We were in front of Judge Potts at the time, who's actually not on the bench anymore. She's retired. And she issued an opinion in 2018. There'd been a delay when we went to federal court and back. And she issued an opinion that agreed that it was a derivative, not a direct claim. And the case was dismissed. And just for our listeners, many of our listeners are in Michigan, but we have listeners across the country. This may be uh, obvious from the context, but Oakland County Circuit Court is a court of general jurisdiction. It's a state court. Judge Potts and Judge Alexanders were judges on that court. They were business court judges. Michigan has a business court system. Both of them have retired, and we have other business court judges now, but both of them were long-serving and had many influential opinions. So you lost that trial, or at the trial court level, on the motion for a summary. You took it up to the Court of Appeals. What happened there? We took it to the Court of Appeals 
frankly, Max, we didn't think that we would get a different result at the Court of Appeals, but this is an issue that I've been following and have been passionate about for a long time. And a lot of attorneys who practice in this area were continuing to appeal these issues with hopes that eventually you would get a higher court in Michigan to weigh in and clarify the standard. In these particular types of cases, it was really important because large mergers are are generally run, I mean, really out of Wall Street and its equivalents. And a practice had developed of assuming that you could make these deals that may or may not ultimately maximize the share price if you just hurried up and issued a proxy statement that was long enough and had enough details and rushed it through. And it was becoming essentially common knowledge that even if shareholders got upset and sued, what they would typically do is they would do what the other plaintiffs that filed in Eastern District of Michigan did, which is try to get an injunction. And then you can settle that by updating your proxy statement and paying out a little bit of attorney fees. In my humble opinion, that's not a great result for the shareholders who feel like they didn't get a fair price. And so what we were hoping to do was keep pushing and eventually get a higher court to clarify that you do in a situation like this, where you've got a cash out merger, where somebody's literally taking your stock away from you and not giving you what you think is fair compensation, that you have a direct cause of action. Right. And as I understand it, you know, a big issue in this case, as you've articulated, is what is the distinction between a derivative and a direct claim? How do we define those terms? And that's, I know that different courts around the country have different tests for determining those. But as I understand the case, it also involves, and this is a closely related question, whether the directors owe any duties directly to the shareholders themselves, as opposed to only owing fiduciary duties to the corporation itself. I mean, that's a really big deal. And um, certainly, as somebody who's practiced in this area, it has long been unsettled. And you see a lot of positions taken. There's just a lot of uncertainty, or has been prior to this point. Yeah, there really is. And it's funny, I got interested in this area. When I was an associate attorney, I was looking for what I thought would be a really easy site to say that, of course, the directors have duties to the individual shareholders of the company. And I was surprised to see that there was no such site. So I cobbled together a brief in that case based on some Delaware authorities, some various treatises and law review journals, and continued to watch it. And you see defenses in addition to the derivative versus direct, you absolutely do. You're right. You see defenses where people say the directors do not have any duty to the shareholders or in the LLC context to members. Their only duty is to the company. And I think a lot of people who invest in companies and help build them up into entities like Covicent that end up being pretty successful companies don't really like that answer. Because if you're making a deal to sell the company, they want to make sure that you're going to work for them to maximize the price. And coming back to that derivative versus direct distinction, having to file a derivative claim, that presents a lot of obstacles. It makes it much harder to pursue a claim. There's a waiting period. There's other obstacles. Whereas a direct claim, you get to do what you did, which is simply file suit based on injury to the shareholder himself or herself. 
For sure, which is, of course, why the defendants and the defense bar that defends these cases didn't want the law to go this way because they want to be able to defend them and say it's derivative as opposed to having somebody run straight to court and say, I want damages. Well, if we were writing a mystery, Sarah, we wouldn't be doing a very good job. Uh, Probably the listeners can get a, a clue from our discussion where this went. But can you tell us what happened at the Michigan Supreme Court? Well, we went to the Michigan Supreme Court and asked them to grant certification for us to appeal to them. They, instead of denying that outright, actually issued an order to have some additional briefing on the matter. And then that was, we were going to have limited argument. So really what we were appealing was leave for the Supreme Court to grant cert and weigh into this issue. We did do some additional briefing and raised really the same issues that we had raised with the Michigan Court of Appeals, highlighting both the difficulty of telling somebody that you don't have a direct remedy when your stock is gone, and also highlighting what a lot of the various law professors in law review journals and other courts around the country have held on this particular issue. It was almost like the law in a lot of the trial courts was all over the place and had kind of gone sideways based on one unreported opinion. And you'd see a lot of courts basically approaching the direct versus derivative issue with a test that started with a presumption that if you're suing the directors of an officer, it essentially is derivative unless you meet an exception. And the Supreme Court, in lieu of granting cert, actually issued an opinion that clarified that issue and clarified the fiduciary duties that are owed, which is, in my opinion, a very welcome development in Michigan law because it settles a lot of frequently litigated and not previously well-settled issues. Certainly welcome in the sense that it provides clarity in an area where there wasn't much. And I agree with you. The way the, the court came down, I think, is very good for shareholders. Can you unpack the court's opinion a little bit with respect to these issues, the fiduciary duty issue and the direct versus derivative issue? Sure. The Supreme Court, in opinion by Judge Zara, actually came out and said that the way that you approach the derivative versus direct is a lot more simple and a lot more straightforward than the way that some Michigan courts had been doing it. He said that you look at the basics, who was harmed and who gets the recovery if there was damages? Who was harmed in this context? It's was the shareholder individually harmed or was the entire company harmed? In breach of fiduciary duty cases, when somebody is pursuing direct damages, there's always a need to distinguish the individual injury of the shareholder as opposed to the whole company. So if the whole company as a whole was harmed, then it's probably going to be derivative. But if the shareholder has an independent damage, was harmed independently, then that leads towards direct. And the other part of that is who gets the recovery. So in a direct case, the shareholder sues for their own injury, independent of the company's injury, and the recovery, the damages, the money, goes back to the shareholders. This is a class action, so all the shareholders. In a derivative action, and this is one of the reasons that the defense bar likes bringing the argument that a case is derivative, 
if you succeed, the money goes back to the company. So Zara broke it down in the opinion and said, start with a very simple, who was harmed and who's going to benefit? And if the answer to both of those questions is the individual shareholder, you've got a direct action, which flipped the law where previously a lot of courts were saying you start with a presumption that's derivative and then you have to meet certain exceptions. And so that clarified the law really beautifully. Two other things that the opinion did that are pretty important. One is the company directors now clearly in the law in a cash out merger context have a duty to the shareholders. This is important because the directors always want to say, I'm serving a huge company. My duties are only to the company. But our point was in a cash out merger, the company doesn't exist. Right. You've made right. a the deal. The company goes away. Right. You're selling it. What? How do you have a duty to a company that you've just sold and doesn't exist? And so the Supreme Court agreed that if you've made a deal to sell the company in a cash out merger, your duty is to the shareholders. And that duty specifically is to maximize the share price, which was very important to our client because there was a number of other potential buyers that were on the scene. And here the directors had gone with open text in part because we alleged there were some personal benefits to them in doing so. So it's right in the law now in a cash out merger, you've got a duty to the individual shareholders. The other thing that I really appreciate the Supreme Court clarifying is an issue of common law fiduciary duties. When we pled this claim, because the law was all over the place, we alleged both statutory and common law duties. In, in Michigan, statutory fiduciary duties are the Michigan Business Corporation Act. And an argument was being made in many cases that the Michigan Business Corporation Act had completely abrogated any common law fiduciary duties whatsoever. And the Supreme Court came down and said, that is not true. Common law fiduciary duties still exist, and you can sue under them for breach of fiduciary duty under common law. That just because you have a Business Corporation Act doesn't mean that those common law duties don't exist. And it seemed like the defense was making almost a preemption argument, though the statute didn't specifically say that it was supplanting common law fiduciary duties. The argument seemed to be, well, look, the legislature is intending to occupy that space by enacting this statute, and so common law fiduciary duties become a nullity. Exactly. And the court didn't like that argument, as I read the, <laughs> the opinion. Justice Zara, I think, forcefully argued that, look, the statute never says that or anything like that, and we can't assume or presume that the legislature had any such intent, and so these common law duties survive. Yeah, and forcefully is a good way to describe it. I mean, he really, really explained these issues better than the lawyers did and, and just in very simple terms came out and said, no, no more of those arguments. Those duties still exist. The fact that this is a cash-out merger in this case really kind of crystallizes the issue and makes it not obvious because it had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court to get decided, um, but certainly made the issues very clear. Outside of that context, does this ruling have the same application? You know, you read the beginning of the opinion and it says, in the cash-out merger context, 
you know, and then it goes and unpacks the things that we just discussed, you know, the directors of fiduciary duties to the shareholders and, and so on. And it almost reads as if it's limited to cash out mergers, but I don't know that the logic of that should be so limited. Maybe this is going to be a subject for future litigation, but what are your thoughts on that? I think you nailed it. This is going to be a subject for future litigation. I think that the opinion has enormous impact outside the cash out merger context. Uh, the discrete question of when you make a cash out merger deal, your duties run to the shareholders, not the company. That is something that doesn't generally apply outside the context because in not all transactions are you making a deal to sell the company. But the questions of whether the Business Corporation Act abrogates common law duties and the direct versus derivative distinction that's huge. And that's not just cash out mergers. Direct versus derivative is a question that those of us who litigate business fiduciary duty issues have been dealing with all the time. And having a very straightforward test is going to really help the trial courts apply the rule and, and figure that out and respond to the knee-jerk motions to dismiss that you see filed in those cases. Yeah, absolutely. So the status of the case now is it was remanded, and so this is back at the trial court. I won't ask you to comment on that if it's a pending case, but it's still ongoing, correct? It is. It's it's ongoing. It, it's funny because we, we filed in early 2017, and not much has happened other than motion to dismiss and appeals, but now we're back at the trial court. <laughs> back at square one. Yes, five years later. Well, let me ask you this. When you started litigating this case, were you setting out to make new law or did you have any inkling? I want to say no. I had no idea. But but yes, I was actively looking to be a part of the push to get the courts of appeal to weigh in to these issues. When the Monteverde firm came to me with this one, I jumped at it because those of us who've been litigating these, these cases knew that eventually a higher court was going to weigh in because Michigan law was was really all over the place on these issues. And eventually the Supreme Court was probably going to have to weigh in. And so, yes, we knew that there was a chance that this case might be the one that they take. Now, I was pleasantly surprised that it was this case that resulted in the opinion as opposed to some of the other cases I've been watching. But yes, I was actively trying to to push and eventually get to a point where we were going to clarify the law and, and really open up a more straightforward avenue of recovery for shareholders who feel aggrieved by this practice, which, as I said, was becoming a, a standard practice where you kind of shove these deals down the shareholders' throats. And here in Michigan, I mean, this is a Michigan-based company. Michigan legal issues. And so there's a real feeling of, of being aggrieved where you've got Wall Street bankers coming in and saying, here's the new deal, you're stuck. And so it was worth pursuing. Let me ask you one more question to kind of wrap things up. In areas where the law is undeveloped or where there's new law that needs to be made or the law needs to be clarified, what is your advice for attorneys for pursuing issues and framing up the issues to get the result that the attorney wants for his or her client? Advice for attorneys would be to realize it takes a very long time. It might not go anywhere, but consider investing some time and resources into it. 
this is five years of our lives, but it's not the only case I've been working on over the last five years. But it's not something you can do if you're only representing clients on an hourly basis and looking for fast resolution and fast recovery. You, you just can't. It's something that requires a lot of research, a lot of writing, and a lot of investment in time and resources and slowly winding it through the system. And here we also had amicus briefs that were filed in this case, which you always hope. And when you get an issue to the Supreme Court, any Supreme Court, you always hope to have amicus briefs. But the amicus writers, too, had to invest a, a lot of time and a lot of resources just to pursue an issue that they believed needed pursuing. Well, Sarah, congratulations on your victory. It's important for your client, also important for Michigan law. Really, it was a very important case. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about it and really interesting to get some of your insights into the case and how things unfolded. Sarah, if listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Probably easiest way to find me would be on LinkedIn. My office is in Bloomfield Hills. You can look me up. I'm Sarah No H and Mac Williams, M-A-C, spelled the Scottish way. You can find me on LinkedIn and <laughs> connect directly to me there. For God's sake, it's not MC. Exactly. Whenever you stand up in court, you always say Sarah Mac Williams with an emphasis on the Mac. I love it. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.